Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am your host, Scott Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. If the topic is leadership, I'm in. I've spent more than 20 years in the field teaching, learning, writing, and questioning. When I'm not working on Phrenesis, I travel, delivering keynotes, working with individuals and teams, and helping people from organizations across industries become better leaders. Want to learn more? Visit me at scottjallen.net. Phrenesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership. We explore relevant topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Listen Notes lists Phrenesis in the top 3% of podcasts worldwide. Phrenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, ILA brings together those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge, and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. If you find an episode that resonates, please share it with your colleagues and friends. And if you want more content, subscribe to my newsletter, The Leader's Edge. The link is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. And now, here's today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to Phronesis. Thank you for checking in wherever you are in the world. Uh, Today, we have a very, very special guest. We have Kolinda Grabar Katarovic, and she is the fourth and first female president of Croatia. 2015 to 2020, with broad national and international experience in politics, diplomacy, and security studies. During her career as an elected official and in national and international civil service, she was elected as a member of the Croatian parliament and served as Croatia's first female minister of foreign affairs and ambassador to the United States, Mexico, Panama, and the Organization of American States. She was also the first female assistant secretary general and member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, senior leadership. She was elected an independent member of the International Olympic Committee in 2020 and has been appointed chair of the future host commission for the games of the Olympiad. Currently, she is special advisor to the dean of the Zagreb School of Economics and Management and serves on the boards of a number of not-for-profit institutions, such as the Friends of Europe, the U.S. Atlantic Council, Halifax International Security Forum, the Concordia Leadership Council, and much more. She is a member of the High Level Advisory Council for the High Representative for the UN Alliance of Civilizations, the Global Ambassador for Immunization for Women Political Leaders, and Chair Emerita of the Council of Women World Leaders. Parallel to her diplomatic and political careers, she has pursued an academic career in government, international relations, and security studies at the Vienna Diplomatic Academy, the George Washington University, Harvard University, the Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Zagreb. She holds a master's degree and is currently writing a PhD thesis in the field of international relations and security studies on the responsibility to protect. She is a recipient of the 2019 Fulbright Lifetime Achievement Award for her remarkable contributions as a leader, diplomat, and public servant. She has also received George Washington University's President's Medal and a host of other national and international awards, 
decorations, recognitions, honorary doctorates, and honorary citizenships. Madam President, thank you so much for being with me today. I just learned a fun fact about you. Before we started recording, you've been to all 50 states in the United States, and your children have been to 48 of the 50 states. That's pretty incredible. Absolutely. But first of all, hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to be with you here today. Thank you for inviting me and uh, congratulations. And thank you very much for pronouncing my name correctly. Uh, (laughs) My name is actually quite difficult for people to pronounce. Even in Croatia, a lot of them fumble. It's amazing that actually kids like uh, elementary school kids and kindergarten and preschool kids know it quite well. But Mm. people often have difficulties pronouncing my name. And perhaps that's um, one of the first lessons in leadership. When you meet people, do put an effort into learning how to pronounce their names correctly. That is very important, not just in making the first impression, but in establishing the right kind of relationship that you want with anyone. But also, thank you for mentioning the fact that, yes, I have traveled to all the 50 states multiple times, and my kids have been to 48 states, still need to go to Washington state and Oregon, but it was wonderful, wonderful experience because we travel by car, obviously crisscrossing the continent multiple times. And the um, time that we spent in the car with our kids was quality time. We would listen to books on tape and then we would stop the books and uh, we would have these meaningful conversations. And they were in the lower grades of elementary school. So that was pretty important formative experience for them in really talking to their parents and traveling around and getting to know people, getting to know places and, and the wonderful country of the United States of America. Well, we too, I was just sharing with you before we started recording, we we just finished 50 states with our children, and I couldn't agree with you more. Sitting in a diner, tired in Wyoming as a team, or mm. we, we, we were in Alaska last summer and, and our day kind of got canceled and the kids said, well, what are we going to do? And we said, we don't know. We've never been here. What do you want to do? But in just the problem solving and the team building and the shared experiences, And again, there's something about doing that by car that just really makes a difference. My kids were also keeping these uh, noticing books. So they would write things. uh, They were like journals. And then they would paste in um, tickets, flowers, the different types of food that you feed to animals, their experiences, etc. So those noticing books are now wonderful Mm -hmm. memories of our travels together. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I am so excited for our conversation today. And and I really would like to start with with something that's in your bio. So you are working on a PhD right now. Is that correct? That's correct. I have to admit, though, (laughs) that I've not been very concentrated on that because I still do a lot of work as, you know, obviously with all the things that you've read that I do. I do a lot of volunteer work a lot of activism on different topics from uh, security to women's rights or gender issues to intercultural and interfaith relations and sport as a unifying force that brings us together. Yes. I have such a great respect for just that element of kind of lifelong learning that very few of us, if anyone is a finished product ever, 
I had a previous guest on the podcast, Chip Shoba, and he said, look, this, this work of personal growth and development is a mountain without a top. It just never ends. It's continuous. And from the sounds of it, you are a curious individual who wants to learn and who's really taken that to heart. And I think that's such an incredibly important element of effective leadership. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to keep learning for your whole life, learning uh, from your mistakes, things that you've done, preferably from other people's mistakes <laughs> rather than your own. But you will be you will be making a lot of mistakes and they're just part of life and solving problems and learning how to deal with your mistakes and how not to repeat them is an incredibly important part of uh, leadership but also working on your academic education. And fun fact as well, I am probably the only or was the only incumbent president in the world who was actually sitting in PhD classes. So <laughs> I was attending those regularly. I missed just a few of those uh, when I really had to travel somewhere. Yeah. So you can imagine me just walking into the class and being a regular <laughs> PhD student participating in class discussions. It was a little bit weird for everyone around me. And people were also resentful a little bit. They said, oh, because of you, the teachers not only come on time, they come in early and we all have to <laughs> sign in all the time. They made the rules stricter because they want to make sure that nobody thinks that, you know, you're getting any leeway and, and, and you're getting it easier than other students. But I did respect all the rules. I put in a lot of effort and now I have to <laughs> complete that PhD thesis <laughs> about a topic that is very difficult, but incredibly important for humanity, the responsibility to protect. It basically comes down to the protection of civilian populations now as defined by the UN in situations of four major crimes and atrocities. However, I think it really needs to be extended a lot more broadly to protect human rights everywhere. Mm -hmm. Human rights are, are not an internal issue any longer, and it's not somebody else's business. It's the responsibility of all of us to ensure that they are respected everywhere in the world. Yes, yes. One thing I would love to have a conversation with you about, because even, even the topic that you just mentioned, human rights, it's a challenging topic. It's a difficult topic. And just the work of leading at the level you have led. Uh, what I would love to talk first about is how did you navigate the stress of just the continual 24-7, 365 for years upon years? What have you done to help take care of self in that space? Because I imagine at times it's it's very, very difficult to do. Yes, it is a very difficult thing to do, um, especially when circumstances around you are the way that they were when I was, I wouldn't say growing up, but really maturing, coming of age, because the war in Croatia started when I was 23 years old. So I was working and I started working for the government. It was my choice, first of all, to stay in Croatia, although I could have left for the U.S., and second, it was my choice to work for the government. And I worked basically 24-7. However, I still had six more exams to go at my um, college before I graduated college. And it wasn't easy because I would study overnight or I would just keep a book on my desk or in my drawer. And whenever I would have a minute, I would continue studying. So in those circumstances, you don't really think about yourself and how to deal with stress. 
And when I left for Canada for my first diplomatic posting, that was in 1996. So that was after the major, after basically practically the war ended in Croatia, we still had peaceful reintegration of um, a part of the last remaining occupied part of Croatia. But as I was leaving for Canada with all the preparations of wrapping up a uh, translation of the book that I was uh, working on as well as, you know, I have to tell you that my first salary for working 24-7 amounted to $95 per month. Wow. And my um, my rent was $200. Thus, you know, you can draw your own conclusions that I had <laughs> to do whatever I could in order to earn a little bit more money by translating books and articles, teaching English or other languages. I was even um, a substitute teacher at a high school at one point. So you do all sorts of things and you don't think about yourself. And then I got my first major allergy, which was the reaction of my immune system to, to stress, to burnout. And fortunately, in Canada, I did take about a couple of months to slow down. So what I did, of course, you know, I came to Canada, I still had a lot of debt to pay off in Croatia, so I couldn't spend a lot of money. But I invested money into a pair of good sneakers. Hmm. And at the time, a Walkman, it was a CD player. Yeah. with a, sh- a shock absorbent CD player. So <laughs> I remember I would, those. I remember those. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, those saved my life, I have to say, <laughs> because I would listen to music. I would get up early in the morning and I would walk to work. It was brisk half hour work from my apartment to the embassy downtown. And I walked every single day to work and back. So that would be half an hour in the morning, half half an hour in the afternoon. And I would go to the gym during lunch break at least three times a week. I would walk the stairs. I lived on the 24th floor and worked on the 17th floor. I would go to the swimming pool in my building every weekend. I would go skating on the canal in Ottawa, which is a 24-kilometer route. Mm -hmm. I would go skiing in Gatineau Park. And physical activity was, I'd say, a godsend for me. Mm It was, it really allowed for me to, first of all, get healthier in every way, physically, psychologically, mentally focused, uh, balanced, and uh, listening to music and, mm-hmm. and walking and listening to music. And, you know, what I also used to do, a funny thing, in my apartment, uh, when I can go running outside, because, you know, in Ottawa, it gets minus 20 degrees yes. uh, Celsius <laughs> plus wind chill. But I did walk in that weather and I would walk in, in deep snow. And I have to tell you that all those stories about snow plowers burying you in snow are all true. Wow. It happened to me so many times because they clear the roads and, and they don't, they're practically no pedestrians in the streets. It was just me. And then, you know, the truck would come by and I would just get buried <laughs> in the snow on the side of the road and digging myself out. I mean, it was nothing like life threatening or, or, or anything. It was just, it was a lot of fun, but I loved it. Of course, you do get upset at, <laughs> at that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that that the hormones that are released, positive hormones that are released during physical exercise are exceptionally important for stress release and dealing with your own stress. And then little by little, I learned how to sort of sit myself down and Mm. have a look at my life and look at the stressors that are causing frustration, first of all. 
perhaps anger, anxiety, and I tried to deal with them. If I couldn't personally, then I would ask for uh, help from friends and family, mostly friends, and also from my coworkers. I would tell them, look, I mean, you have to find time in my schedule for me to get away, to be able to relax, to go out for a walk, etc. And when I was president, I adopted a dog. Hmm. So uh, she was from a shelter and just caring for her and the way that she returned all the love and care and walking around with her was great. And I think that um, caring for an animal or caring for animal, anyone for that matter, being able to kind of defocus from yourself and focus on somebody else, be it a human being or your pet or the environment is something that you need in order to be able to step out of the situation, especially if you're going in loops, if you're just circling around and not not being able to break that cycle. Just focus on something outside of what is preoccupying you right now. Hmm. I had heard a similar notion of, you know, when you have teenagers, you get a dog for them, that there's just this source of unconditional love. No matter what's happening in the teenager's life, there's unconditional love and happiness in front of you, right? <laughs> and I, I never thought I mean, about that. <laughs> you know, when you come home, uh, yes. your dog is always happy that you're home. You don't get a grumpy person. <laughs> I mean, she was, she hated to be left alone. So yeah. she'd do little pranks and she'd destroy things. But that's because she wanted attention and she wanted to be with me. So I understood. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I grew up with animals. As a matter of fact, I grew up on a, on a farm in the suburbs of Rijeka. So I, um, I was used to animals and I used to have a horse as well. So I did some riding. I unfortunately, I can't do any riding any longer because I have problems with my spine due to multiple injuries during my lifetime. (laughs) But other than that, um, again, animals are just wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful creatures. And they will recognize your emotions and they will respond to that. Hmm. Well, okay. Part of the source of some of the stress of leading at the level that that you have led is that the the problems are so complex. By the time it's on your desk and on your plate to discuss, it's no longer a simple or a complicated problem, it's pretty complex. And there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers, there's going to be people who are left out, people who gain. It's it's just adaptive work. I know you've done some work at Harvard, and, and Ron Heifetz calls those adaptive challenges, especially in this VUCA context that we're in. So how did you approach, and I understand that it would vary depending on the issue. But let's just say for some of those challenges that just really are more complex, how did you approach the problem-solving component of your role? Because I find that fascinating. Again, you know that a certain faction of people will not be pleased with the decision. By the time it gets to your desk at your role, it's not easy. Yes, there is great complexity. And also it becomes a lot more difficult when you're working in a multicultural environment. Mm. And for instance, NATO was the case in point for me, where you had at the time 28 nations. So people from 28 different nations, from different cultures, from different sides of the, the two sides of the Atlantic. And then also when you compare Croatia, it's different from the U.S. um, Mm -hmm. and different from 
what I saw or what I experienced in Canada and um, certainly in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. Croatia is a lot more hierarchical. Mm. And I try to put a lot more emphasis on teamwork and on the initiative of my coworkers. The problem uh, with that was that they felt a little bit awkward and even afraid to come up with initiatives. And they were waiting for me to call them and to tell them what to do. And mm. I'm not really that type of manager nor leader. I always like to engage people around me. And I think that uh, teamwork is always a lot better. You know, ultimately, there, there are situations when you just have to act like a boss and you have to bring an end to a situation, whether it's a protracted conflict or whether it's a position where you can't come to this uh, joint decision or, you know, ultimately as president, obviously, I was responsible for any type of decisions. So I had to take the responsibility in taking that decision as well. But perhaps one of the most difficult tasks that I had to do when I came to NATO is the division that I inherited that was cumbersome and that had almost been abolished. Uh, mm -hmm. by people at NATO, by the nations, because they thought that it was just too static, that it, they were, the division was spending a lot of money and the output was not great. So, you know, those were the so-called times of austerity. It's different. NATO today, you don't really have to justify the reasons for NATO's existence. But back when I worked at NATO from 2011 to 2014, there were a lot of questions, you know, what do we need NATO for? Is it just a remnant of the Cold War? What is the purpose uh, of NATO, etc.? And my division was in charge of communications and in, in, in charge of strategic communications and day-to-day -day information. So I had to reform the division, which meant that a number of people had to go. Mm. I had to choose based on the task that I had been given by the nations and by NATO, by the personal competences and affinities of every single person, every single worker. And of course, based on my vision on which I had been selected for that position to transform and to reform the division. So I really took the time to talk to every single person in uh, the division which meant extensive conversations with more than 120 people before wow. I proceeded with the reform of the division. But I did take the time to, to demonstrate to everyone that they are important, that their views will be taken into account, but that they're also responsible to present those views, not just for themselves, for the future of the division as well. And I also talked to the Employees Association, which is incredibly important. I could not believe I did not expect some kind of a workers union at NATO, but there it is. And, and rightfully so, to protect the rights of the employees. So I talked to them about the potential conflictual situations. And we came to an agreement to take care of those people who unfortunately had to leave the division. Uh, we placed them in positions where we thought would be more appropriate for them that would not mean for them that they're going down in any way. So an adequate position professionally and financially and in every other way. And that would allow them also space to grow and to perhaps use their professional capabilities a lot better than in the place or in the position where they sometimes were even stuck. So those are very difficult decisions. Lots of ethic dilemmas mm. because, you know, you're deciding on the future of people who had spent years 
at the division, and now they have to transition somewhere else. But I'm happy to say that, yes, we did resolve it in a positive way for the division for NATO. There was one case where it ended up with some kind of appeal. However, having talked to the employees division, association, et cetera, that was ultimately resolved amicably because there were no arguments that would go in favor of that person carrying a case to court, uh, et cetera. So that was, you know, required a lot of patience, a lot of actually listening to other Mm -hmm. people and thinking about what they told you and adjusting, you know, not sticking to the initial plan 100% all the time, because especially when you're when you haven't come out of that division, but you're coming from the outside. And that also goes for the elected office. You know, in the campaign, you say all sorts of things, what you're going to do or not. But then when you come to office, you realize that the limitations of office are a little bit different than you had foreseen or that some of the circumstances are actually different. So you have to be able to adjust your goals, adjust your plans. But even when you have to do that, you have to keep in mind that you shouldn't be adjusting your values, Mm. that the values are those who have to carry you forward. And the values are those who give you that inner moral compass in mm. order to be able to conclude a difficult job. Well, let's let's go down the road a little bit of influence for a moment, because I think to your point, so much of, at least in the States, you know, uh, President Trump is elected, President Obama's elected, President Biden's elected, and they sign all the executive orders they can in the first couple of days. And then it gets down to influence. <laughs> yes, uh, working across the two aisles. <laughs> what are some reflections you have on the, the challenges of influencing factions of people or individuals? Uh, maybe there's some hints or tips that you have that you came across that you found have worked for you when it comes to influencing others. But at least one definition I've used of leadership is the process of influencing others toward a common vision. and. When we have all of these competing commitments and conflicting priorities, that influence process, that's a challenge. You have to be persistent. You have to be patient and you have to be creative most of the time. So in Croatia, as president, it's not like the U.S. You you don't have all of those executive powers and thereby also the frustration of what I was doing because I was the highest directly elected official by the people. I was accountable to the people. I had huge expectations of myself and people had huge expectations of me. And then you find out that you can't deliver because you don't have the powers to do so. The executive Mm -hmm. power is with the government and with the prime minister. And you often have to negotiate in order to be able to carry out some of your, at least some of your projects. And that is, uh, and it's not just particular to Croatia, it really pertains to any situation in the world, is that when you come up with a proposal, with a plan, with an initiative, it's not always welcomed as something that people would like to cooperate on and take as joint victory or gain afterwards, sometimes it's just perceived as competition and negative competition. And it's just you're sidelined or you're ridiculed and you're taken out of context, etc. There were several discussions in Croatia and several uh, difficult issues. And I will just make a 
couple of points, just single out two of them. One is um, the education reform. So there was a change of government in, well, during my presidency, actually three governments changed in the course of five years. So you can imagine that there was a lot of time (laughs) where the government was just going on autopilot and there was practically no one to talk to during the election and and pre-election and uh, immediately post-election time before the government is formed. So the uh, group of people who, the commission who had been working on um, the reform of education, which we badly, badly needed in order to just to adopt to the modern standards and requirements of the 21st century, they had been, um, they were they were considered by the new government as political appointees, et cetera. It wasn't really the case. So there was a lot of friction between the new minister of education and the the president, the head of that commission, mm. who was um, who enjoyed a lot of public support. And of course, it was a lot of pressure from different groups in society for or against the reform, etc. So I had to deal with those pressures and I had to, I wanted to put everybody back together at the same table for them to continue working because it's really about the country's future. And then I invited them at, at, at a crucial point, I invited them to my office and I set them together and I said, okay, let's work this out. Let's iron this out. Let's try to find a way forward, some kind of compromise, how we can proceed so the, that not everything that has been done is just destroyed or, or, or thrown away, etc. And then the second situation is um, demographic situation in Croatia. We're mm-hmm. aging. Um, the number of people is on decline. The number of workforce, uh, most importantly, is on decline. And young people are leaving. There's a lot of brain drain from Croatia because of opportunities. I, I Young people can study and work everywhere in the European Union. And that is quite understandable. For some, you know, they were not happy in Croatia with the circumstances they lived in. But for most, uh, was just using the opportunity that you can study and work elsewhere, which I would be the first person to do. I mean, I was an exchange student in Los (laughs) Alamos, New Mexico in 85, 86, when it was a lot more difficult to do. And I completely understand those young people, but no, we're losing them right now. And we want to bring them back with all of their experience and everything that they will have learned in their new environments. And then people were telling me, okay, if you think that there's really an emergency situation with demographics, why don't you just present your own demographic strategy? And my advisors told me, yeah, okay, I'm going to do it. So I said I was going to do it and I come back to the office and I tell my advisors, you know, we have to start working on that demographic strategy. And I said, what do you mean? We're not capable of doing that. And I said, why did you tell me to tell people that I was a bit I was going to do it. When I say that I'm going to do something, I'm going to do that. And that's it. So I ultimately ended up locking up at my office up on the hill that we call Pantovchak in Zagreb for about 10 days to two weeks. I did not leave office. I canceled most of my meetings, all the travel, and I would sleep at my office. I would eat there. I was reading all the previous demographic strategies, demographic strategies of a number of countries, and I produced my own that was about 70 so pages in length. It was a thorough analysis of the reasons why people are leaving and the way forward, how to tackle those issues. 
And it had a plan, a short, a medium, and a long-term plan for its implementation. Of course, I'm not an expert in demography, although had I had the time to actually put references, it would have been a solid academic work that I could publish. Your dissertation. That could but, have been- yes, my dissertation. <laughs> but I didn't have the time to reference it. So it was rather, now it, it remains as such. And of course, the media who did not understand, and, and that's the problem, is that most journalists are not educated enough in those issues to be able to understand. Their only question was, how much is all that going to cost? Mm. Of course, I had foreseen that they would be asking that question. And then I put the answer up on the slide saying, well, how much does future cost? But of course, you know, because there, unfortunately, there was no cooperation from the government to actually implement, they set up their own commission that is still working. So I produced the strategy in the matter in a matter of 10 to 14 days, and they're still working on it. That is um, an example of negative cooperation on part of the government. Yeah, we did have a meeting where we presented the strategy, but for them, it was okay, you know, we're going to do our own. Yeah. And a third example where creativity is involved, you mentioned one of your presidents, uh, Donald Trump, who was president during four years of my term, of my five-year term. Obviously, I had to work with him. And I resorted to these very practical elements. You know, Croatia is not really high on top of the priority list for the US. So I had to use every opportunity when I would meet with him to put items on the agenda. And I would create these little papers, kind of like cheat sheets, if you want to use uh, language from uh, high school. And I would write, you know, visa waiver and where we are, what needs to be done. Um, Avoidance of double taxation treaty, where we are, what needs to be done, military cooperation, et cetera. And then I would give those to President Trump and he'd put them in his inside pocket of his suit And actually, they would be, he'd give them to his colleagues in the office, and we continue to do the work. So Croatia today is part of the visa waiver program. We don't need visas for tourist visits to the U.S. The um, avoidance of double taxation treaty is basically here. So, um, you know, you have to find ways how to make use of those 20, sometimes 20 seconds, sometimes a few minutes, sometimes about half hour of the time where you meet the president, how to actually focus his attention of what needs to be done. And don't assume that he's going to remember what you tell him. No, because he's only human. None of us can remember everything. And you know, the president of the US, he gets everybody around him to tell him what needs to be done. So with these little cheat sheets, with these little pieces of paper that I would write very succinctly, I made the point of focusing not just his attention, but the attention of the administration on things that needed to be done. Well, and that's a great example of of creativity and influence, right? Creative approaches to influencing and yes. getting some of those smaller wins to build the relationship. And I think it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Okay. What's interesting about, I imagine that as, as president of of Croatia, you are finding yourself in these situations like meeting with the President of the United States and any number of other situations over the time that you served in that role. Is there one that stands out for you as just a really unique experience that that you'll just never forget? Something that you thought, wow, this is my life right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there 
There are quite a few, as a matter <laughs> of fact. And um, experiences with people in Croatia, just traveling around Croatia was always most rewarding. But, you know, when you think about perhaps to single out, you know, you mentioned President Trump, you, to get to that political side, we talk a lot about uh, the strained relationship between the two sides of the Atlantic. So I witnessed a few situations where things were very close I, to falling apart. Mm-hmm. And when I read about those situations in the media, then I think back, oh, yeah. And, and, and I think of what was said and what was done around the table. Of course, those are things that I cannot talk about publicly. Sure. But you're somehow witness to history, history in the making. And the second situation that I need, that I have to single out, because that has sort of given me world fame, world fame which I'm not sure that I should be happy about because you want to be remembered by your by things that you have done as a human being and as a leader. But I mostly remember from my cheering the Croatian team during the World Cup in Russia in 2018. So that was a great experience for me. But on the other hand, also for a country like Croatia, which is not big geographically uh, in, the num- in, in the number of people, for the president to be known all over the world for happy, candid behavior for team spirit, for reaching across those divide lines. Okay, we uh, play the game. Unfortunately, we did not win in the finals, but we we did not win gold, but we won the hearts of of people around the world. That was incredible. So for me, that is definitely something that I will never forget. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I always close down the conversation by just asking guests what they've been reading, streaming, maybe they've been listening to something that's really stood out for them. Is there anything in in recent times that's caught your attention? Yes, definitely. Of course, we all all watch Netflix. I I joke that I became Netflix chick in 2020. Uh, I left office on February 18th, and then the pandemic struck in mid-March. We were in lockdown, and from an incredibly busy, adrenaline-filled life, I was stuck in my apartment, and then I subscribed to Netflix for the first time. And then I watched everything, all the movies, all the TV shows, had nothing to do for months. And then we started with these uh, Zoom conferences and, and VTCs, which changed things. But lately, I watched Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, just a few days ago. However, I have to say it does not compare to the, I love D.H. Lawrence. I love to read D.H. Lawrence. And I just, you know, the movie, mm, it does yeah. not, you don't get that 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 the spirit of the book in the movie. But what I've been really into is listening everything that comes out of Ukraine. Mm. And I'm a native speaker of Croatian. I understand most Slavic languages to a certain degree. And by now, unfortunately, because of the war, I understand Ukrainian pretty well. I can get by speaking uh, in these life um, situations, real life situations. So I've been reading a lot about Ukraine and I've been mostly on YouTube, but on Telegram and other channels following on what young people have been doing and their art as well. And I have great respect for Slava Vakarchuk, who's one of the most famous Ukrainian uh, pop singers, but also for their other pop stars and, and for Ukrainian traditional folk music. So I'm kind of, I, I listen to that kind of music and I make an effort to really understand the words and to really understand what they're saying and the national pride and the love for Ukraine that they display. Mm. Again, back to that lifelong learning. There's so many different dimensions to 
to learn. And I love that you're focusing in on some of the cultural elements, but then also, of course, staying very, very close attuned to what's actually happening in the developments. Talk about a, a complex leadership challenge mm. that uh, is not far away from your door. That's for sure. Absolutely. For me, it's also, it brings back so many memories. I mean, we had, I, I lived a similar life. Uh, again, the war started in Croatia when I was 23 years old. It was on a different level than Ukraine. However, it is so similar in so many aspects. So I truly understand the complexities and how difficult it will be to resolve not just the conflict, but the post-conflict situation, peace building and reconstruction, but also reconciliation and a lot of these human war crimes and, and everything else that comes into play when you deal with a complex situation like that. The only thing that I can tell you right now is that certainly when, and I was in Ukraine in December for a semi-official visit. And what I can tell you is they will not stop fighting. They're incredibly motivated because they're defending their country. Mm. And we hope that the war ends as well. Yes. Very powerful statement. Well, maybe we end there. I, I am so thankful, Madam President, for your time today, for being with me to talk about leadership, a lot of these different nooks and crannies that we explored. Uh, I hope you'll come back sometime. We have a lot more to discuss. I, I just so appreciate your willingness to come on. And uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you so much. I will remain in the service of Croatia and in the service of humanity, regardless of what official office I hold. Well, that's an incredible way to be. That's an incredible way to be. Thank you and all the best to you. Bye-bye. I am not going to lie. This one got my attention before we started. <laughs> You know, I have not interviewed a head of state on the Fernices podcast, and I am just so thankful for her time today. It was just a lot of fun to engage in dialogue. And the practical wisdom for me when we were talking about influence, it was just really, really, really interesting how she said that you have to be persistent, patient, and creative. And her story about influencing President Trump was just a beautiful example of that, that we have to be persistent, patient, and creative. So you will notice that is the title of this episode, Persistent, Patient, and Creative. Now, did all of the experiments work? No. And she mentioned that. It doesn't always pan out. But if we're going to influence others and engage in this work of leadership, are you persistent, patient, and creative with your influence attempts? So as always, everyone, thank you so much for checking in. I can't thank you enough. And be well, take care, do some good in the world today. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I'm also on LinkedIn, so let's connect. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And now here's my daughter, Emily, with the outro.
You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.